When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at South Africa, where former President Jacob Zuma faces a 15-month jail term for contempt of court after refusing to cooperate with an official inquiry into corruption and state capture during his nine years as president, which ended in 2018. My guest is Judith February, a South African lawyer and newspaper columnist and a member of the board of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. So does the sentencing of Jacob Zuma mark a turning point for South Africa? Jacob Zuma's long-faced allegations of corruption and abuse of power, but many doubted he would ever be held accountable. So it was a dramatic moment when, a few days ago, South Africa's Constitutional Court announced its verdict. Here's Acting Chief Justice Sisi Kampepe. No person enjoys exclusion or exemption from the sovereignty of the laws of the Republic. And Mr. Zuma is no exception. And indeed, it would be antithetical to the value of accountability if those who once held high office are not bound by the law. But former President Zuma made it clear that he had no intention of going quietly to prison. He launched a series of legal challenges, and he attempted to rally his supporters by claiming that he is the victim of nefarious forces who want to take South Africa back to the days of apartheid. I'm very concerned that South Africa is fast sliding back to apartheid-type rule. I am facing long <clears throat> detention without trial. Despite his protests, Zuma was taken quietly to prison on Wednesday night. However, the former president still has some legal challenges outstanding. It was and is a tense situation. But taking a few steps back, it's clear that South Africa's already taken a historic step in turning the page on the Zuma era and reasserting the rule of law, as Judith February explained to me when I spoke to her on the line from Cape Town. It is a crucial judgment, I think, for many reasons. It stands out for me because it sends out a clear message that nobody, not even a former president, is above the law. And I may point out at this stage that when Mandela was president, this was a message that he tried to send very early in his presidency when he was called as a witness in a court case, which bizarrely was also about setting up a commission of inquiry, but into rugby. And people were outraged at the time that Madiba, with his godlike status, could be called to account in a witness box. But he was doing that early on in our democracy to indicate equality before the law and that everyone, no matter how powerful you are, needs to be held to account. And certainly that is what the Constitutional Court judgment last week signified. But The language that was used by the court also was really firm and drawing a line in the sand. 
And what the court was doing was really reinforcing its own authority. And as then Acting Chief Justice Cece Kampempi said, she said the job of the judiciary is, quote, a lofty and a lonely one. But then also went on to say that the courts cannot rely on purse or force The constitutional court doesn't have an army that it can muster. And so it depends on everyone, no matter how powerful you are, adhering to its authority. And she was really clear in her language to indicate just how egregious Jacob Zuma's conduct was when he was cocking a snook at the judiciary and also at the commission of inquiry into state capture, which ironically he himself had set up. So it was powerful for those two reasons particularly, but also... I think because there was a a very strong black woman who was delivering this judgment with such force and such clarity of mind. And the symbolism of that will stay with us for a long time. Were you as a lawyer, as a South African, concerned that the rule of law really was in danger? I mean, both during the Zuma years and then during his efforts to kind of shrug aside the commission looking into corruption? Well, we had almost a decade of of state capture, what we call now the nine wasted years. On President Zuma's watch, there was large-scale looting of the state. And what Jacob Zuma did was he brought our institutions to the edge. He was always pushing us towards a crisis. It's not the first time, incidentally, that he's been found to be constitutionally delinquent. In fact, in 2016, the Constitutional Court similarly ordered him to adhere to constitutional precepts. And there again, the Chief Justice Mahueng Mahueng had very strong words about the role of a head of state in preserving, protecting and defending the Constitution. So this constitutional delinquency was part of his presidency. But there's something at the heart of the South African society which is robust, which is resilient, a powerful media, strong civil society, which really formed a bedrock against the impunity of the Zuma years. And I dare say got us through the nine wasted years to the point where we are now trying to rebuild from this self-inflicted wound of corruption and state capture during the Zuma years. And economically, as opposed to legally, how much damage did the nine wasted years do to South Africa? I mean, I think per capita income actually fell during that period. The economic damage was severe. I mean, South Africa is said to have lost over those nine wasted years about $70 billion through corruption and state capture. Also, we had a growth rate which barely exceeded 1.5% per annum. Our unemployment rates skyrocketed to about 28%. And that is the narrow definition of employment. So it excludes the number of people who have given up looking for a job. The debt as a percentage of GDP ballooned to about 53% towards the end of 2017. So there are very real consequences to Jacob Zuma's corruption. Also, the levels of inequality have risen and the gap between those who have and those who don't has increased exponentially. Apart from that, we've also had hollowed out institutions. So those state-owned enterprises and government enterprises, for example, ESCOM, the electricity provider, Transnet, the provider of transport, Danel, the 
arms provider, those institutions were all looted through contracts to Jacob Zuma and his associates. And they are now hollow shells. And part of the Ramaphosa presidency is about rebuilding that damage. But also revenue collection came under pressure during the Zuma years as well. Far more individuals who were skirting ways in which to pay tax. And also, of course, if you have an ailing economy, you're not going to have the revenue collection that you should have. And in 2018, we were in a recession. So these years of state capture had very real consequences for ordinary people, government wages way down. The repercussions of that are serious, and we are still busy trying to dig ourselves out of that hole. So a huge task for Ramaphosa when he took over as president in 2018, and I guess not made much easier by the fact that he only just managed to get control of the ANC and the Zuma forces was still very strong within the party. And is that still the case? So when President Sir Ramaphosa took over, he certainly took over a country which was in crisis in every way, both economically and also politically. But also he took over an ANC which was divided. Firstly, Jacob Zuma was recalled by his party. There were many days of back and forth of the party trying to convince him to do the right thing, to step down gracefully in a dignified manner. He eventually did so, but after he kept the entire country guessing. This is typical of Jacob Zuma to put his own interests ahead of those of the country. And President Ramaphosa did not have an overwhelming victory at the ANC conference, which brought him to power. And so he's had to hold the tension within the party between what one would loosely call the reformist wing of the ANC, if one believes that Ramaphosa represents that, a part of the ANC which believes in the rule of law, the constitution, and so on. And then former President Zuma and his allies, who believe in what they bandy around as radical economic transformation. But really, it is simply another fancy way of dressing up a kind of looting of the state and untrammeled access to state power for personal gain. And so Ramaphosa has had to deal with that ANC in many ways filled with the corrupt individuals of the Zuma years, both at a national level and also at a local level. Ramaphosa is an institutionalist. He believes in the institutions of state. And sometimes for us as South Africans, he can be quite frustrating because He tends to be somebody for the long game. And so he will be silent. He will wait and wait until the institutions and processes do their tasks before he intervenes or speaks strongly about whether it's corruption in his cabinet or what is happening within the internal politics of the ANC. But slowly but surely, we are seeing progress. Slowly but surely, we are seeing institutions being cleaned up. We are seeing individuals being appointed who have integrity, and that there are green shoots of this renewal. That is partly because of Ramaphosa's efforts, but I think also partly because we have a society which, through its media, through its civil society, is insistent on the standards of the constitution. We know what it's like to be governed by whim or by force, and South Africans are quite jealous about their freedoms. But I guess, I mean, you say it's encouraging that there are green shoots in society, in the economy, as Ramaphosa tries to turn the country around. But he's now been hit with this terrible whammy of the COVID pandemic. 
And I gather that that's getting worse in South Africa. Presumably, it must be quite a worrying situation. It is a worrying situation. And what COVID-19 has done is it's laid bare all the weaknesses within our society, the deep levels of inequality, the deep levels of endemic poverty, and also the high levels of unemployment. The government simply does not have the money for this kind of crisis. When the 2008 financial crisis hit, South Africa was well padded against that because we had proper systems in place. We had responsible governance and also responsible management of our of public finances and resources. After the Zuma years, that was no longer. And so in a sense, the bulwark the Treasury was had fallen. And so one has a kitty which is bare. And add to that a global pandemic, which has hit South Africa really hard in terms of making poor people who are on the margins even poorer. And also it's shown up the weaknesses within our institutions, the weaknesses within our police force, for example, when we had lockdowns, the poor were at the receiving end of a lot of instances of police brutality, for example, trying to get people to stay locked up inside ramshackle homes. And so all of the things that divide us in South Africa were really were really laid bare. And then we had at the beginning of the pandemic, what was a reasonable response? Ramaphosa came out, government acted relatively quickly. They acted early, but then the wheels started coming off because a country like ours can't be in lockdown forever. We don't have the resources to have people be at home and for the economy to stop. And so Ramaphosa finds himself in a very difficult position now, dealing with the third wave the Delta variant in particular in um, Gauteng, the economic hub. It's looking really, really grim. We are in what we call a level four lockdown. So um, there's severe restrictions on movement. But one has to also balance that with livelihoods and keeping the economy open. And the only way in which we're going to be able to deal with this, I think, is by rolling out uh, the vaccine as quickly as possible. And the president will have to do a lot more to try and stabilize the Ministry of Health and also to harness the power of the private sector, I think, to be able to roll out uh, vaccines in a way which is efficacious and in a way which we can fully open up the economy at some point. So it is a perfect storm that we're in. Yeah, and the perfect storm, I guess, because you have, if one thinks about it, a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a full-blown political crisis in the Zuma situation. And it strikes me watching from the outside, some of it very reminiscent of even what happened in the United States, the way in which Zuma's rhetoric is willing to trash state institutions, to indulge in conspiracy theories. It's classic populism, isn't it? It is. And in a sense, Zuma is a very Trumpian character. So he cries foul when the rules must apply to him, but he doesn't hesitate to use the courts when it suits him to do so. Also, he would define judges as good when they find in his favor, rare as that has been, and then bad when they don't find for him. He's also surrounded himself with a group of sycophants and criminals and lawyers who are opportunistic and who would tear down the edifice to protect Zuma to advance their own careers. We've seen his lawyers even now try to use every legal trick in the book to try and keep him out of prison. 
And what they're doing is they're pushing our legal system to the edge and also pushing the limits, I believe, of civil procedure. So it's quite similar to a sort of Trump-Giuliani relationship. Jacob Zuma has plenty of those individuals. But also he's a master at the song and dance, the bread and games. He's a master at simple, short messages. And he's a master of victimhood. And so not unlike Donald Trump, um, when he lost the election, he was the victim of a grand conspiracy to rob him of the elections. Jacob Zuma similarly was on national television holding a media briefing saying that he is a victim of the democratic state. And never before has a president been treated so badly. He said it was reminiscent of the apartheid years. All of that is a lie. And um, interestingly enough, the, the conspiracy theories abound, but also this idea that the Constitution is what he would call a white man's document. And he has used that very cleverly to try and cleave those racial divides even further and saying that this is something which is alien. And of course, that's all a lie because our Constitution was negotiated. And it was a very inclusive process and something that we chose to have a constitutional democracy. So smoke and mirrors, the populism is there. And very good, as I said, at the song and dance routine, very good at the short, sharp slogans and at getting people to follow him, a sort of Pied Piper scenario. So there are many similarities between Zuma and Trump. Just a footnote, but what what does he even mean by it being a white man's document, that it's a kind of conspiracy to keep apartheid in place? The argument is that um, the Constitution is not African, that this is something that's been imported to South Africa by white people within our country who want us to be held to a different standard. So it's sleight of hand and it's a lie. And part of it is that it's become popular in post-apartheid South Africa from some people, for example, the economic freedom fighters, a minority party made up of Julius Malema, who used to be a member of the ANC, who also bandy this idea around that the constitution is a white man's document. So not for Africans, that Mandela sold us out when he negotiated the settlement for the 1994 elections, that actually people should take the land, they should take whatever they can lay their hands on, because in fact, Mandela sold us out. We got civil and political rights, but we didn't get economic freedom. And so you'll have a range of slogans, for example, at Zuma rallies, economic freedom in our lifetime, radical economic transformation, all of it is part of the same trope. And the constitution is seen as standing in the way of economic transformation. But of course, the facts don't bear that out. What the facts will tell us is that on Zuma's watch, South Africa's economy was all but destroyed. Our institutions were all but destroyed. And what he has done is feathered his nest and those of his associates very nicely, while the populace remains poor. So the facts will bear that out. And in fact, it is the constitution that since 1996 has been the bulwark against impunity and has protected the rights of those who are most vulnerable in our society. And so the failures of a democratic government and corruption within a democratic government is not the constitution's fault. And as we know, institutions are only as strong as the individuals who populate them. So it is a lie, it is a sleight of hand, but part of the populist narrative 
And in a country where you've got high levels of unemployment, where you've got high levels of inequality, those sorts of arguments are weaponized to sweep people up. And it's dangerous rhetoric. And I'm very pleased to see that this week the ANC reaffirmed its commitment to our constitutional democracy, but also said that the constitution was something that we all chose to abide by. South Africa made a particular choice to be a constitutional democracy. It wasn't an accident. And so Jacob Zuma's attempts to call the constitution something which was forced upon us, the ANC gave that short shrift this week. And that was a powerful statement which was in support of the Bill of Rights, in support of the rule of law and our constitutional democracy. So just to summarise, I mean, it seems listening to you that this Zuma case and the struggle to bring him to account It's not just about justice and making sure that the legal system works and that there are consequences. In a broader sense, it's an argument about the political future of South Africa and whether it remains a constitutional democracy. It is. And so this is a very important moment for us. It's a moment where the right decisions need to be made, where the institutions of state need to work on behalf of all of the people and not prefer an individual's personal legal travails over the rule of law. And so it will be a test for South Africa as to whether our institutions will hold firm. Thus far, our constitutional court has been battered by Jacob Zuma using every avenue he can and really hurling insults at the court, hurling insults at all of those who would hold him to account, at judges in both the constitutional court and in the lower courts. And thus far, the judiciary has stood firm that this is a pivotal moment, but not only for the courts, also for the police and and other democratic institutions that need to do their work. That was Judith February in Cape Town, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next week for more discussion of international politics.